0: Hello and welcome to Disability Movement Etc, a podcast that keeps on going no matter how tired both John and I tend to be. <laughs> I am Dr. Andrew colombo Gavido. I'm John Lepke. Acronyms Unimportant. <laughs> on today's episode, John and I are going to be talking about disability-led work in the middle of nowhere and what lessons we can take from it. And we're also going to be talking about addiction and is that a disability or addiction as a disability? Um, we also have John, you did our interview for this week. Can you want to tell everybody, tell the listeners what you guys talked about and who you talked to? Sure. So the interview this week is Tracy Lindman, who is a
1: Canadian journalist writer who wrote a book, upcoming book called Bleed about endometriosis and some of the barriers to access from both a lived experience perspective, as well as folks that she spoke to
0: in community. Fantastic, Uh, and I think that ties in really well to some of the stuff we have to chat about today. So, you brought up this first topic, so why don't we just get right into it? And how about you tell us a little about it? What What do you want to talk about? Yeah, so I'm curious because I'm in the middle of the Canadian Prairies,
1: which I happen to live in a big center in the Canadian Prairies ish. Certainly, for by Saskatchewan standards, but. In Canada, we see a lot of disability activism or advocacy conversations being centralized in certain very large um, uh, cities. And so I'm curious with myself being where I am and you being in Denton, Texas, what lessons we feel the uh, the movement, I guess you could say, can learn from places that aren't uh, New York, Boston, L.A., Vancouver, Toronto. Uh, and how we see ourselves as people slotting into that. So, you know, uh, this topic originally came up because you were in California at the end of was it the end of last year? Um, and so I'm curious, your thoughts were from uh, from College Town, Texas, going uh, going to a bigger center to talk about disability, activity, and movement.
0: Yeah, and. I'll preface this by saying I I grew up in a smaller town in Michigan. We were only like 15 miles from Flint. So it's not like we were super, super out in the middle of nowhere where the biggest town was hours away. But I think there were like 8,500 people in my hometown. So wherever that falls on person scale of smallness. I mean, I think the benefit of being near a bigger city is you have the access to infrastructure right cities sort of are forced to build some kind of infrastructure to to allow people to move from one place to another semi-efficiently often not the best i mean i think You know, places like New York or San Francisco or Boston or any of the other sort of major cities most have like a metro line that runs around the city. They tend to have buses, there's sidewalks, uh, which typically are wide enough. There tends to be curb cutouts now. In the... What I've noticed is the further you go away from those major metropolises, sort of the less reliable that infrastructure tends to be, which make a lot of the other stuff harder, right? It's, it can make the advocacy, it can make the community building, it can make the organizing more difficult if you can't navigate independently, right? If you may have to, for instance, rely on you know, a a driver to pick up like Uber or I know here in Denton there, they experimented with almost this like public version of Uber where uh, it's basically like a bunch of minivans that go around and you can request a ride and it's supposed to kind of take the burden off the buses, which at least here in Denton are fairly limited in like the routes that buses take. So this is kind of like I don't know, an intermediary space. It's kind of like a publicization of, you know, this ride share kind of idea. And so I, th- I think it's tough. I think there's absolutely fantastic disability led work going on in rural spaces. And I think technology and what we've kind of had to learn through the pandemic of using Zoom or Google Meet or any of the other millions of <laughs> video conferencing softwares that have cropped up in in the last three years that certainly made it easier. I think with the advent of of much of the social media companies, Twitter primarily being a place where where people could congregate, and so if you happen to be, you know, one of a handful of disabled folks in your particular community and you were hundreds of miles from, from a mecca, then the internet has been a great place for that. I mean, the N live chat room was huge for the, for how we even consider and talk about neurodiversity and autism today. And I mean, that chat room, I think has been closed or at least it shifted quite a bit. You know, I don't think it's really existed in its. F- the same form at least for the last 15 years or so but now with kind of how everything's shifting especially with the the turmoil at twitter and stuff those spaces are sort of going away or they're they're sort of becoming disrupted again and so i think that adds a challenge to people in in these spaces to try to continue momentum and to to keep advocacy and whatever gains we may have made and i know you're in fairly rural area but you have a small college with you or near you and here in Denton we're it's kind of a unique space in the fact that we're like 45 minutes from two fairly large metropolises right there's Dallas which i think has a couple million people and Fort Worth which also has a couple million people and that's not to include like the dozens of suburbs between here and there but if you go north of us, and that's all south of us, so if you go north of us, you know, there's small towns, but there's really not much until you get close to the Oklahoma border. So there's, I mean, we're sort of right on that cusp of, of, of urban and rural areas. Yeah, and we're um, certainly,
1: where I am, we're certainly not, uh, we're not, um, we're not rural in the Saskatchewan sense. We are, as I put it when I pitched it to you, comparatively, the middle of nowhere, uh, because, you know, you just mentioned Dallas being two million people. My whole province is like one point one. Right. So. um and the university is big on the uh on the um prairie scale of things, I guess you could say, but certainly not on the American style of colleges. The university that I went to, which is a similar sized center, although a smaller university I believe by enrollment about fifteen thousand students or something, and then the u f s is probably like twenty thousand University of Saskatchewan, which is in Saskatoon where I live, yeah. You speaking about rural, I did a series with accessibility.com um about just interviewing different independent living centers. And interviewed there's one independent living center that is a number of lots of the independent living centers talk about needs for rural supports and are in rural areas. But there is one independent living center that is specifically focused on rural areas and and you know it's interesting to talk to people on both sides of the border about how how um The disability conversations can get really, especially in Canada, and maybe it's my perception, but those conversations tend to get centered in those spaces. And the issue comes when you try to prescribe like a Toronto style of activism to the prairies. That isn't to say that like you can't, like a Saskatchewan activist can't learn something from a Toronto activist. But one, for example, I'll give an example in Toronto and I've been there many times before people start yelling at me, you can yell at somebody and you can safely assume you will never see them again. And my joke is, you know, Rajan is like 180, 200,000 people where I used to live you yell at somebody you're probably going to see them again and they're probably going to play a part in your life and that's just sort of the reality of like the amount of times where i have wanted to explode have not exploded and then realized that it's like a massive arts funder or somebody who's an editor at a local paper or like something that feel that is important to my daily life where it wouldn't actually benefit me to explode at them is like most times. And that doesn't mean I've been told by, I've been told previously by activists in those spaces that that's me tone policing. I happen to not think that it is. I think there were times where I was and I, you know, shouldn't have been that way when I was 20. But I do fundamentally believe that it takes deep and difficult conversations to talk about how the activism that exists in huge spaces can be applied, what lessons can be applied and what lessons from Saskatchewan can we apply to bigger centers, right? Like what lessons from the charity model that my province exists on for a lot of equipment funding, equipment funding that I think I've ranted about on this podcast and that I do have to apply for this week (laughs) to get a lift on the front of my house so that I can get into my house in a wheelchair. Like, how can we use that knowledge, for example, to head off charity model stuff in other places? How, what can we learn from the way Ontario is talking about the privatization of healthcare to impact the way Saskatchewan will undoubtedly, because we are run by conservatives, start talking about privatize or continue to talk about possible privatization of healthcare? We need to learn more from each other, but I think part of that, and I'd be curious, your thoughts on this, I think part of that is we have these digital tools, and still historically, I think we're battling against a wave of it being difficult to get to these other places and to live it, so it's very easy to see it. you know, the only reason I got to travel is because I was a parasport athlete so how how can we, aside from the immigration bit of it, but like how can we? Come together (laughs) to learn about what it means. Like one of the things that I heard in the independent living thing is one of the barriers is that a lot of accessible transit will stop at the county line. But in rural America, you might be, I mean, preaching to the choir here, obviously, but you might be going over three county lines to get to your accessible thing. So you can't actually get accessible transit because the three systems don't want to work together. And they all have different systems, and they all have different funding models. And oh, you're not a resident of our county, so you can't take our transit. And oh, you're the only way you set the Oklahoma border. um uh You know, I I can only think of a town on on the other side. You know, like I'll pause so you can cut that out. I was about to say arcana is the only the only town I can think of that's definitely straight on a border, uh, but like yeah, it's not Oklahoma though. No, it's Arkansas. But anyway, if if you. You know, like there are people who live in places. I mean, we have a city that we have a city called Lloyd Minster. That is the middle of town is the border between Saskatchewan and Alberta. (laughs) And that's.
0: Oh, oh, yeah. That's a lot of. uh, There's a. There's a. I was going to say there's a there's a town in Tennessee that sits like literally the state line runs right through the middle of town. So on one side of it. You're in tennessee on the other side of it you're in virginia and it's literally the middle of the towns so. yeah I yeah in lloyd, that. it's really interesting
1: if people want to go look at it at lloyd minster um uh sir so they basically divided it up and i don't know the full history but they divvied it up so that uh on some things it's saskatchewan law that that exists on both sides of the border and on some and within city limits and in some areas it it is other things. So for example, I think the hospital is on the Saskatchewan side. So all of the healthcare stuff is Sask healthcare. Mm.
2: Uh
1: I can't remember education-wise. I think education-wise they're on the Alberta curriculum. Like it's really interesting how, mm. or at least they used to be on maybe slightly out of date, but point being, you know, there's lots of, um, you know, if you need to go over a border in the U.S. to go get if that's the closest health care, but the paratransit will only take you to the border like it creates all of these kinds of complications that that quite frankly, they exist in different ways in, in Dallas, oh, Fort Worth, for example, or whatever. But I just think sometimes we don't we don't talk enough about the places outside of those things or we don't talk about in stages of development that like disability as a culture being at different stages in different places. It's just like, well, this is where Canada is. And I'm like, yeah, but like we have, I mean, there are 13 provinces and territories and all have different ways of just doing disability funding, for example. Like uh, it continues to surprise me in a, in a country that is geographically large, but population wise not very dense that we don't, part of our community work isn't teaching to say with people about what's happening in other provinces. Because they all have pluses and minuses when it comes to, you know, funding and healthcare and stuff. Like, okay, we looked at it purely from a um assured income perspective. Alberta has the most. But Alberta has some of the least, uh but Ontario has the best um uh Alberta tends to ha- or sorry Ontario tends to have the best set of interlocking systems of course ever there are lots of people who fall through the cracks so this isn't me making presumptions but has some of the most restrictive when it comes to who can get what equipment um, BC tends to have some fairly good funding but your whether you have extended medical coverage depends on your income level rather than just being disabled Saskatchewan is middle of the road in terms of assured income but has one of the better extended medical um for certain disabilities so it it's such point being as i ramble here andy that i think there just needs to be within the disability you know disability justice disability access we need to educate each other about the same about the places in which we live rather than presuming that we're starting from the same foundation and then creating that split of like what a dc disabled person thinks versus what somebody from you know uh you're wearing a Virginia shirt. What's a What's a town I know in Charlottesville? Is that in Virginia? There you I think go. it is.
0: Yeah, probably very similar, though. D.C. and Charlottesville. That's true. Um,
1: uh, fine. D.C. and... Was, but, um, D.C. and... Go with... Uh, little see, Rock, Arkansas. A,
0: like, I don't know. <laughs> there you go. That might be... A li- yeah, that Little Rock is still the capital, though, of Arkansas. That's true. So
1: I'm a little... Okay, yeah, fine. Small town. Um,
0: we're going to have this geographic... Pines <laughs> <Heinz> Bluff, <laughs> yeah. Arkansas, because I think that's where Arkansas go. State is. There you go. Yeah. There's yeah, much smaller, but still a university town. So, yeah, I think you... Unfortunately, in this conversation, there is a layer of <laughs> essentially identifying the flaws of a federalist system, right? Of Of essentially how we've constructed modern democracies, at least in the U.S. context, and and I'm not saying that Canada is um, copying the U.S. because certainly all have prime ministers and funky parliamentary systems. And but in in terms of Western democracy, the idea of of a weaker federal government in, in to allow for more localized municipality guidance is ultimately how we've gotten here right the the sort of i i don't want to maybe it's disregard but but essentially lack of centralized support or guidance limits the ability to have a cohesive strategy to to help people across the board <laughs> but given I've been indoctrinated, As say given given how I've been indoctrinated into this system, Mm -hmm. I also understand why in the US can be helpful, right? To to sort of default to letting the people in a particular community guide policy. The problem is, is you're right, you have say And I'm not saying Denton is great at this, but because it's certainly not. But Denton, we have this pseudo public Uber system. Yet you're right. They won't go past city limits. So if you happen to live as a disabled person, a block past where the city technically ends, I highly doubt that 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 driver will go the rest of the way they'll stop at the end of the line and they'll say okay you can get it from here or you have to do the typical thing of like the one i can only describe <laughs> as crip negotiation yeah. yeah yeah bargaining pleading begging whatever yeah adjectives if you want you No,
1: know, somebody but... who knows somebody who knows somebody who's willing to make an exception yeah it's always think, that th- isn't it
0: i think you're right i think we there are things to learn from each other in those situations though. I think there are ways in which rural folks have been very economical about finding ways to adapt to their current environments where it might not be the most ideal, but we can figure things out fairly straightforward. And you know, (laughs) unfortunately it takes sometimes that individual effort because you happen to be the only wheelchair user or person with a visual impairment In your, for the next 50 square miles, for instance. And, you know, so there's no other people that necessarily can relate to the issue you're facing. And so I think we can learn a great deal from folks in those positions to to understand how can we help people who might not have, say, the resources or the access of folks in the Bay Area, for instance, and vice versa. I think the Bay Area, we can learn, uh, As it's been for the last 50 years, really a hub for disabled folks and disabled activism because it's it tends to be more progressive there. There's also a lot of affluence in the area. I mean, there's extreme income disparity in the Bay Area extreme, but sort of the benefit of having those rich folks there is that their tax dollars can be used to help make sure sidewalks are accessible. There's bus lines everywhere. The Metro runs, you know, that there are actually elevators to go down into the Metro and you can access every station instead of like a quarter of the stations, which I think is what New York is at, like a quarter of the, you know, a quarter of new york subway stations or something ridiculously small have like elevator access everywhere else the stairs so if you're a, a wheelchair user you got to really make sure you know which stops have an elevator when you get yeah. off on in that way or might you like me change, and a
1: wheelchair user who shows up and makes a big show of carrying his chair down the stairs for fun um, <laughs> yeah, which yeah, has exactly. been my experience i don't i haven't been on the uh, i haven't been on the ttc recently toronto but i uh, I have been in Montreal and, and been it's a interesting experience. Um, yeah, and of course yeah, I grew up in Britain. Loose. So I've that's, been on that's the underground
0: lately. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think, I, I think you know, it's, we can, it's, we can learn stuff. It's just the the um you know, I think that
1: there is an important aspect, you know, Canada being a confederation of uh you know, different provinces being able to make their their own decisions it gets messy i mean the reason that we're seeing made expansion is because of a supreme court of quebec decision so you know these aren't s- suddenly uh you know these aren't suddenly things that uh, you know these aren't certainly aren't simple things but i think it just requires more listening and it's my same old diatribe that i go on on the podcast i think it's also us knowing Obviously, I can only speak to Canadians, but speaking to Americans, I think Americans, a lot of Americans feel the same way Uh, in some of these disability activist circles. We need to do a better job of knowing our history and knowing how these things developed and knowing why certain things are inaccessible in the way they are. You know, I think I saw recently, and I'm not speaking ill, the writer, somebody, a disabled person wrote something in uh, for Forbes, and they, I believe it was Forbes, and they called themselves neurodistinct and not a term I'd heard before. People can reference themselves however they want to. I think a lot of these about these a lot of these terms in terms of like same conversation we're having about neo pronouns. In the I I think they're you know they're important and they show identity and we can very easily fall down a rabbit hole of you no know, cut that Andy. I don't I don't ugh, please cut that. Um uh the point being I'll tell you cut this too but Point being that neopronouns are really important, and but we don't people who are people who are promoting is the wrong word. People who are using neopronouns do not suddenly think that everybody should be using neopronouns. Whereas people who think identity first language should be used believe that everybody should be used identity first language by and large. And I think that's the lesson that those words could like we could use is that like I might not use neurodistinct for myself, and it might come across to me as like a oh, we're creating more word soup. But the more that I think about it and the more that I think about this connection to rural or not, you know, comparatively small centers is that we need to be thinking about how rather than sort of projecting what might work in one place, actually thinking about local context. Um, Because I think the history of activism has been, disability activism, has been in a lot of ways especially from ally led stuff and i'm using the term ally liberally because it's you know people tend to give it to them themselves but um not necessarily disability led shall we say has been to say hey we have this great model that works in center x Let's throw it the other side of the country, because I bet it will work the same and not think about demographics, not think about, you know, there's just so many. I mean, you know, I'll pass it back to you. With It's to me, it's sort of like understanding the demographic section of our research paper to make a very odd comparison. Like If you don't know where you're falling down, then you don't know the direction you need to
0: go. Oh, yeah, sure. And I think it highlights a little bit of the privilege that some of us have to sit and think about some of these elements, right? Like what terms we're using or how we're referring to whomever, because I think, I don't want to say all, but say there's probably a fair majority of people, disabled folks even, who Could really care less about terminology or phrasing or any of these other items because what they're really looking for is accommodations or they're really looking for support. And oftentimes I think that might be what can breed some, at least continue some of the prejudices That come along with using inappropriate language where people sort of assume um, or or take on certain identity forms potentially negative because they're upset that their disability makes it so they can't access things in their community like their peers do or um, like they see others do. Or they have to always ask for something extra or additional that should be afforded to them. Already, but isn't because of the way things are set up and coming in from from a situation, you know, where we may be in cities like you or I, John, maybe it's in something bigger. Maybe it's like a Mecca, like the Bay Area or or wherever. But swooping into those communities or jumping onto those individuals who may be sort of searching for help in online spaces and don't use the right terminology somebody jumps down their throat because they don't appreciate that term they come from this space where we don't use it i think is just really destructive in terms of trying to establish better connections between urban and rural settings and be supportive of places and like you said i think there's definitely things we can learn from rural settings and apply them to the bigger overall picture um, but instead of actually doing anything about it we just end up infighting and complaining about terminology et cetera. Et cetera. yeah i
1: think a lot of the time um, maybe a dangerous thing to say but i'll say it anyway i think a lot of the time whenever I feel like a conversation is running away from me on social media around disability activism, it's when the conversation has gotten away from the material concerns of disabled people. And it's gone. We need theory. We we need those backbones. We certainly need we certainly need these models of things and understanding language. But when we start falling into like you use these words and I use these words and you should use my words instead of saying, right, what we're actually drilling down to when we're talking about in spaces that we want to hear each other. So why don't we hear each other? Mm-hmm. Because the material realities of the people that I speak to on social media are radically different to most of the material realities of disabled people where I live. And and I think, in a lot. and I'm not saying that's not me saying in-person activism is best. I've went out side for the first time in like for something non essential for the first time in like 6 months yesterday it's not me saying we need to do in person over everything or you know whatever we tend to talk about in wider non disabled activist circles but i think we do need to reorient some of our conversations towards material material impact and that requires like a large swath of different approaches and You know, there's some great it's that stopgap of or that stopping point of so many activist movements where we're caught on the language because we don't feel as a community. And I think we're right. Whereas as a set of communities that people know the language enough. But then the question is. Is our energy best spent writing article and article and article over and over again about identity first versus person first language? Or are we better off buying a bunch of demystifying disability from Emily Wadow and handing it to people? Like, to give an example, we'll talk about Judy Human a little later, leader of activist movement that recently passed away. You know, uh, a memoir. A memoir is a wonderful thing for these sorts of learnings. Uh, You know, I am trying to be endlessly curious about how we actually change the material impacts around us for other people. And I think we already do this, by the way, right? The people who send mutual aid to each other. I think that just is less of a conversation than it could be because it gets drowned out by the vast majority of GoFundMes and things like that, Um, you know. It's that meme of us all giving the same five bucks to each other. Like, we're already doing this. It just tends not to be the focus because it's the hard part to talk about. It's easier to talk about language than to talk about the trauma of a GoFundMe. And I don't, I don't, to be fair, I don't know how to square that circle, but I
0: think I we're either. working towards so maybe, it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how to square the circle either, but maybe that's a good reason that we shift to our next topic. And I think it's, I think there's a good connection here with the idea of, of, Language talking past each other, and I think just trying to be more compassionate as a community in terms of being less beholden to labels or certain forms of identity and be accepting or or recognize. I guess when we're talking about access and we're talking about need, and that can come from a number of different things being, uh. Thing that is diagnosed or something that is something you're dealing with and processing and don't necessarily have (sighs) the money, the wealth, the time to seek proper diagnosis or or what have you. And that leads to the topic that I wanted to chat about, which was addiction as disability. And what spurred this was a, a piece in Slate that came out in February titled, How Treating Addiction as a Disability Could Transform Treatment. Um, And what stood out to me, particularly about the article, was they cited a 2014 article that found 54% of people believed landlords should be allowed to deny housing to people with drug addiction, 64% believed employers should be allowed to deny employment, and 90% of people in that particular study would be unwilling to have a member of essentially to have somebody who isn't has an addiction to marry somebody in their family. And I would venture to guess that the numbers if you just took out addiction and replaced them with disability they they wouldn't be too far off of that. Mm-hmm. But I think there's even more stigma associated with addiction and my my issue often comes when we do we do talk about this idea of uh, meeting people's needs and we are very big at least talk wise of trying to improve well-being and improve people's health but yet we often want to dictate how those people's lives have been led or how they are expected to lead their lives in the future in order to warrant help. And just to think about the fact that there's such a large amount or a large percentage of people who would say, if you're addicted to something, you should lose your job. How does that benefit somebody who is an addict? Or who has an addiction? How do you benefit somebody by taking away their housing to say because you're an addict? We're not going to get. We're not allowing you to have housing here. Like, I don't understand how that benefits. And if we layer, if we layer that on top of how folks with addiction often struggle just to, or how they may be using addiction just to potentially cope with either. Undiagnosed disability, perhaps pain management. Um, perhaps they come from less than decent households. Growing up, they face abuse or other elements in the home. Like sometimes addiction seems like the only way to go for a number of reasons. Right? Like we we can become addicted because you know kids are experimenting and they just happen to get hooked on something. We can become addicted because you have a surgery and are prescribed opiates and opiates no longer are enough to cut the pain so you have to find something harder right like there are so many ways in which people can become addicted and with the added stigma behind all of it and the hypercriminalization of it we don't leave people many options to find help or, or to find treatment. And that's, that's completely set aside the fact that we are selective about the drugs people are addicted to, right? Like we're fine with practically all of m- most modernized society being completely addicted to caffeine that's a fine drug because don't, well, I, we all get it for once i don't have coffee on my desk today <laughs> and that's surprising for most of us right but we are most all addicted to it we don't think twice often about alcohol in spaces i mean certainly we deal with alcoholism and, and that element but you have to have a real issue with alcohol before that becomes an issue. Somebody drinking four or five times a night, four or five times in a week, like that's not. I mean, not most people would be in like, the same way. Well, yeah, and it's, you know,
1: you said the link back to language like, action is covered underneath the ADA. It's covered in Canada, it's covered underneath the human rights framework, but it's not commonly understood and what i find interesting is if you look i mean look i have i i don't have lived experience with addiction i had a minor brush with oh i shouldn't be doing this and and left it alone so this isn't me speaking from particularly from experience but when we look at the treatment models of disability or sorry the treatment models of addiction when we're hearing about addiction as a disease like it we are using disability language already. Um, but it's, again, it's that social stigma. And when I talk to people who, who do work in this area, what they tend to tell me is when we're, Trying to treat people. It's very difficult to treat from a disability led model or to think about it in those terms because addiction is already stigmatizing. So they're already dealing with one label once they've decided to get treatment or whether they've been forced to get treatment for, for the addiction that they're working through, working through, working with. Right. So it's very difficult to teach from that disability led lens. Not because necessarily you don't want to, but because it's difficult to to support people in that way. And then I think if you ask to use a labor metaphor, I think if you if you ask the rank and file disabled person whether addiction was a disability, I'm not entirely convinced that they would label it as such. I think I've told you, I can't remember if I've said this on the podcast I've certainly rambled to you off of it about how it seems like every 10 years we have a referendum on a new thing. Right. 2000. And when I was in high school, it was um, elementary and high school, which is telling you when I went to elementary and high school, (laughs) early to early first decade of the 2000s. You know, people were talking about like, well, does ADD and ADHD fit underneath it? The last decade has been more conversations about chronic illness and chronic disability, which, by the way, definitely underneath the framework. My argument is that addictions is is the next one not that we ever completely get rid of it? Certainly, you know, people are once again talking over and over again about oh, all these people self diagnosing as ADD and ADHD. Well, that's what it's hard to make a distinction when a community has been told no for 30 years. It's funny how that works. Uh, yeah, I'm really curious how how addictions plays into, you know, our futures of disability advocacy. It, it has big echoes to me of you know, my own mental health disabilities and how people are willing to help you until your mental health becomes, a you know, they're willing to talk about anxiety and depression. But if you get one of the quote unquote scary, uh, quote unquote but scary, ones, air quotes. Then people don't want to give you support, and I think we're trending down the same line, even within disability community. When it comes to addictions, it's like, oh no, scary people over there, and I don't, I, I don't think that that is a, I don't think that that is an equitable way to go. And I, I think more conversations about disability within addiction from a cross disability framework would really, would really benefit. But you know, before the podcast, you and I were talking about addiction and its connection to, um, uh, sorry, before the podcast, a few weeks ago, we were talking about the connection between the ways we talk about addiction and the ways we talk about hyper-focusing and things like that. Did you want to talk about that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, you, you brought up a couple other things too, for me. And I think there's, I think there's an immense parallel when we talk about addiction and whether it's a disability or not, to things also like obesity, and I'm not I'm not equating addiction and obesity or, or anything along those lines, but the idea of could we classify for the sake of legally being able to give accommodations to folks who have obesity uh, or, or would be considered obese or or overweight or, or any of the categories? And I often posit this question to my undergraduate students, uh, many of which who are not obese, wouldn't even be considered overweight by the BMI standards. A lot of them are kinesiology students and, and so therefore have had tremendous experiences, mostly beneficial with sport and physical activity. So they tend to have a very narrow understanding of this idea of health and of course they're taught. <laughs> Forever. Weight is bad. Exercising or calorie restriction is the way to defeat obesity. And I've not done, I don't do a lot of obesity research and and whatever, but I can certainly look at the fact that we've spent the last decade, almost two decades, essentially ostracizing obesity as being this awful thing, yet have literally no progress to show for it. Apparently obesity is getting worse and worse and worse and yet still also failed to acknowledge the fact that you can be obese and be healthy. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Um, the other piece in, in line with hyper focus and. Seeking relief or seeking some kind of way to cope with one's disability, whether it is ADHD or not, I think is, um, there's such overlap, right? Like the statistics on ADHD and addiction alone are, are frightening, right? Like the amount of folks with ADHD or some others sort of either learning disability or behavioral emotional disability that often turn to addiction because they've been failed elsewhere right like i'm i don't think i've ever reached the point in which i would consider myself an addict but i stopped drinking alcohol around the age of 21 right i had enough poor experiences before my legal drinking age to realize that if I kept doing this, it would not lead to a very good space. And so, I stopped drinking and whether... I don't remember going through withdrawals, I don't remember doing any of those things. But I, I realized that this was not a good thing for me and ultimately, that did come back to acknowledging my own ADHD. and. How particularly for me, certain stimulants or depressants act in different ways. So when I drank alcohol, <laughs> I would be like, I just did an eight ball of cocaine. Like I would be just ready to go. I could stay up until ungodly hours of the night where everybody else kind of gets that depressive side of, of drinking alcohol. And it was just such the total opposite. Um, but I, and I've since I'm now medicated, I, I take uh, Adderall, which a large number of the country takes for ADHD. And whether that's over-prescribed or not, I don't know. Probably it is. Maybe it isn't. (laughs) It's Uh, enough people need it that it helps somehow. And honestly, (laughs) Adderall is like one chemical component different from methamphetamine. And I know taking a pill is much different than smoking meth. I get that, but literally the chemical compounds are similar. And so if I in a, in a place, and I think we can tie this back to the rural discussion, if I'm in a rural area that I lack access to a doctor that is willing to hear me and doesn't come with a predisposed understanding of what ADHD is, They don't believe that ADHD is overprescribed. They don't believe that ADHD can't happen in adults. They, you know, there's all these things that exist within the medical system. And so if I don't have access to that or if I don't have access to a pharmacy that is close by, but I happen to know there's a drug dealer around that you can get street drugs to help you cope with your with your ADHD. I mean, just the pathway alone to get to drug dealer and to go the legal route is so much easier just to go the illegal route because that's the way we've designed it to happen. And I think ultimately, when we have these discussions about whether or not something is a disability or not, it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter how somebody gets to a point where they need an accommodation. If we need to label something, something for legal sake to to be able to have that ability to provide services, then yeah, fine, label it whatever we need to. But we're not going to get anywhere until we start looking at this with a little bit more compassion and empathy. And one thing that really shifted my view on this whole topic was sort of in the middle of last year, around the anniversary of Kurt Cobain's death. And for I'm certain most listeners of the show, but who knows, maybe somebody's come afterwards. If you don't know who Kurt Cobain is, I suggest you go down a slight rabbit hole and check out entirely Nirvana's catalog and I'll go down that route. But anyway, he Kurt Cobain was a a musician, singer of Nirvana, just a lightning force that that has changed a lot of modern music, but also real stereotypical musician that had, you know, a lot of mental health struggles. I don't know exactly what he was going through, but he dealt with addiction. He dealt with heroin addiction. And one of the things that Courtney Love, who was his wife at the time, had said in, in reflecting on that entire experience was, What she thinks ultimately killed Kurt was an abstinence only view of addiction. And that in order to help an addict, we must 100% get them to stop a drug. And that completely ignores why that drug may or may not be needed in the first place. And not to say that we should just. Let people do heroin wherever they want. I'm not suggesting that. I certainly do believe that we should provide needles to people who need them, that we should provide safe places where people can use if needed under supervision where appropriate, and that way care can be provided. But there are countless stories of people who use a drug in order to. Be able to cope with daily life. And in fact, all of many people do. If you have a drink, a glass of wine or a beer in the evening to help you relax from your stressful day, well, guess what? You are, you are taking a drug and putting it into your system. The only difference is, is you maybe have the ability within your system to manage Holding off on that until the end of the day whereas somebody else May need it at the very beginning to even start their day And I think until we acknowledge that we're gonna have people who abuse drugs or use them way too much or get turned into drugs that that will (laughs) Lead to places bad bad places in their life, but we're also going to Continue this process where athletes who are who become injured and become addicted to pain meds will ultimately be addicts and hide that because of the shame. NFL players cough, yeah, or I mean, just literally any parasport athlete. I mean, many parasport athletes, especially if they're they're you know, an amputee or or they have a traumatic injury that caused their disability. Like there's likely to be pain there. There's likely to be some kind of pain management routine. And if we don't talk about how easy it is to become addicted or how easy it is to allow a drug to start running the show, right? There's, I think there's a difference between, and we could certainly, maybe this will piss people off of, of the idea of functional addicts, right? Where you, you're able to, quote unquote, control the amount you take or you do just enough to keep you at an even keel. I understand there's problems with that. But if we can talk about it, going to be much more likely to catch people who start venturing into that space where they are no longer in control of that addiction. And
1: I I think a lot of the times and especially in the US, although it's true in Canada as well. The carceral mindset that people have taken towards addiction, you are criminalizing being disabled. Now, whether we understand that as a society, which we don't, I'm not even sure disability advocacy communities really get that unless they have some lived experience or connection or they're in those circles, because certainly a lot of disability activists are in, they're also at police and prison abolitionists. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the endless discussion about um, safe supply, safe consumption sites, et cetera, the endless sort of battle that uh, those with addictions have had to fight. I mean, even when we say that, those with addictions, we're using person first language. So, like, language is interesting here as well. Like, the sort of not in my backyard approach of a lot of places of like, yeah, people need support, but like not where I can see it. Right. Um, yeah. I think we do have a lot of, I think we do have a lot of, we make some pretty false assumptions about like, well, they wouldn't say this to wheelchair users. One of the things that I think they wouldn't say to wheelchair users, I think we're right. Is that like, no, like the, I mean, this is a bit of a funny comparison, but like the difference between a physical rehab hospital and addictions rehab, I don't think too many people would be very not in my backyard about like a spinal cord injury place. Yeah. I try to tell yeah. them that there's a, a drug rehab place behind Safeway. them. Yeah. That people it's totally are horrified and, and you go, right, but it's. Yeah, it's, it's fundamentally it's, the same thing, but we just don't perceive it that
0: way. And it, it's, yeah. it endlessly. it's, it's even, yeah, me. it's even more, even more taboo than disability alone. Right. And I mean, just the way we portray addiction, you know, the, I mean, I, I, in the U S we've struggled with this forever. And one of the ones I find most hilarious is the fight against marijuana and how how that conversation has shifted a lot of things particularly in the recent years and in terms of like you were saying uh drug charges for you know essentially possession charges right people who got thrown away for mandatory minimums of like five to ten years for having essentially the equivalent of a joint on their person and it's like this one, that's not helping the person who you happen to catch. And ultimately it's not stopping this. What's been portrayed as this like drug epidemic or whatever they call it. And it ultimately doesn't benefit anyone. It doesn't, like you said, we're always like, yes, people need support. They need help. They need this. They need that, but we just don't want to see it and we don't want to talk about it. We just want it to happen. And the only time it really ever becomes a conversation for most people is when it ultimately impacts them directly. And I, I really struggle with that aspect that we, I think we as a society are just so reactionary to everything. We, we wait and we say, okay, how do we fix this thing now that it's happened despite people talking about it for Decades, right? People have been saying, "Hey, this is something we should be talking about." And circling back to, for instance, the the shift on marijuana and weed, it's also led to places like um, Portland or Denver decriminalizing things like psilocybin or MDMA, which in within the last five years have started to experience a tremendous amount of scientific research that's shown just how beneficial things like psychosyllabin or MDMA or ecstasy or molly or LSD, how those have been used for people who maybe they're addicted to heroin and this can help them get off because the MDMA or psychosyllabin allows them to process deeper trauma which is what they were using the heroin to help cope with or it helps folks with for instance veterans with PTSD or mm. rape and assault survivors or kids with depression or kids with extreme anxiety or ODD or autism i mean it it's just not to say that these are wonder drugs mm. and, that, and that i certainly don't believe that but that when we strip away the stigma that's involved. And we acknowledge that in order to seek treatment in the approved fashions exists within our broader system, which is not helpful for for most people. Right? I think you get into this with Tracy talking about the ideas of medical racism and medical ableism and just like the belief that, say, for women, they can't be autistic because aut- autism doesn't occur in women as frequently. So doctors are predisposed to not look at somebody well, not it's, at, and, at and a it's woman. Yeah.
1: And not to be annoying, but it's it's more yeah. so that the diagnostic criteria were created around. Oh sure. Like, yeah. I'm created yes. they were the, created with men in mind, just like a lot of the a lot of the well, a lot of how oh, it happens now, but um,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. And there's, Historically there's another under-diagnosed. example. Yeah. And there's another example of like, I forget what it was, but there's a thing with African American men that for some heart rate measure, I can't remember exactly, that doctors were applying this like added thing to be like, well, yeah, black men don't qualify because. XYZ or whatever. And what they found is that that really was just based in this sort of really shitty evidence in the past. And once they changed and looked at it, they went, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense why African American men have this this high rate of cardiovascular disease. Because in our entire way of prescribing and looking at this, we've been analyzing it in the most inappropriate fashion. And those are two isolated cases, but that goes ad nauseum. And so when we, when we, I think some of us progressives, and I, I use that term very loosely, when sometimes we look at things and we, we hope, we have a belief that the institution that we've created should support this thing. We believe that, that there's some element of group support, that it's not just all individual responsibility. Yet I don't think we do enough to really acknowledge how poorly we've set those institutions up and how badly those institutions have failed people. And that critiquing those institutions is not to just say, well, let's scrap them, let's get rid of them entirely. And in some cases, I might say that because you tend to be that damn leftist who's a little bit too radical for even the leftists. But there are times when if you just get rid of an institution, you're going to hurt a lot more people than you may end up saving. And there's always going to be some discomfort with change and shifting, and we can never fully account for every single possible scenario. Yeah. To me it's like there's a difference between
1: you know the institution and the way that we think about it in terms of the medical institution or as we'll get to in Crypt the week the legal institution versus obviously the institutionalization of disabled people in those settings. And I think it's so how we talk about it, which is really the foundation of this podcast, but how we talk about these things needs to be heavily context dependent because a lot of the things that are really damaging to community are still happening because somebody with power believes it is the highest good. There is no other reason for the Judge Rotenberg Center to exist other than people with power believing it does reach as a highest good, which it very much does not. Don't zap autistic people can't believe that has to be said. However, (laughs) yeah, you are always battling against somebody who believes in their heart of hearts that they are doing right by disabled people.
0: John, I, I think that's a great place to end. We could certainly talk forever, but Let's take a break. And when we get back, you will hear John's interview with Tracy Lindman.
1: All right. Welcome back to the podcast, Disability Movement, etc. And I'm here with Tracy Lindman. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning. Thanks for so much for for taking the time. Let's start here. Can you tell me a little bit about your work and how we come to share space today?
2: Yeah, I am a longtime freelance journalist from Montreal, currently living in Western Quebec. I had, have endometriosis. I had adenomyosis or adenomyosis, depending on how you pronounce it. And I also have a bunch of back problems but i wrote a book about the endo and the adenomyosis it's called bleed destroying myths and misogyny and endometriosis care and it's coming out march 21st so um, counting down down the days yeah
1: perfect so we'll go here you wrote in the book that folks who, who you spoke to for the book um people whose voices were included didn't tend to see themselves as disabled um Despite what, what you say in the book is sort of, you know, endo is a quite a disabling condition in a lot of ways. Can you tell me a little bit about why that, why, why people tend to not see themselves within the disability community?
2: I think there's a few really interesting reasons why. One is that... Uh... From a young age, you know, people who get periods are often told, this is normal, They're, you're not special, there's nothing wrong with you, just suck it up. Um, and so I think that gets internalized because we hear it basically as soon as our periods start and we're still children at that time. I mean, my period started when I was 11, you know, and so it has a really big influence on your future as a person with this extremely painful condition. And I think that like hearing that from family members and doctors and maybe other adults in your life really changes your, really moves the line on what you consider disability and what is not a disability. Uh, If we're being real about it, I do think endometriosis is a disability. It can be extraordinarily painful. It can prevent people from working. It can make people land in the hospital. You end up going to the doctor time and time again looking for help. But because we're told that what we're experiencing is nothing unusual, we we just kind of go forward into the world with this idea that we have to overcome our pain uh, in ways that most Other people probably wouldn't have to. You know, most people would be like, you know what? I'm going to take the day off because I'm in agony. But, you know, for me, for example, like I would still go to work. I would still go to the gym. I would still go to the grocery store. I would still do all those things despite the pain that I was in because I thought that that's just what I should do, that I didn't have an excuse to take it easy. And so that internalization is a really powerful tool. And what ends up happening is that we all become like really high functioning disabled people for better and worse.
1: Yeah. And and what do you think can be done to to, you know, often on the podcast, we ask what, what can the disability community broadly defined? Although uh, listeners are probably tired of hearing me say there are so many disability communities that it can be difficult to, you know, lump into into one. But what do you think disability community can do to to be more for the umbrella to be more accessible to for somebody with endo to identify as such?
2: There is an endometriosis community, as you may have suspected. It's quite large because, you know, 10% of people assigned female at birth have this condition and that's worldwide, right? And also there are like unknown numbers of trans and non-binary people and also rare cis men who have endometriosis as well. And so this is a really prevalent disease. So that means that the community is quite large and there's different factions within it. People who believe X and don't believe Y. And you know, I'm sure that's present in every disability community. Uh, yep. but, I'm sorry, my cat is misbehaving. Oh,
1: don't worry. You're fine. We we edit. So you're, okay, you're good. and I wouldn't be worried anyway.
2: <laughs> he's he's very rambunctious today. He woke me up very early. Yes. Yeah, so there are these different factions within the community and I'm not sure if people with endometriosis want to be under this larger barrier of just disability in general. I think people are very attuned and focused on their particular challenges. But I do think that um, having endometriosis recognized as a disability more broadly in society would benefit us in a few different ways. One is, as we saw just very recently in Spain. pass legislation that gives people with very painful periods days off every month from work, a paid days off. That would be life-changing for so many people with endometriosis. Because, I mean, if you have to take a couple days off every single month because you're unwell, but you only really get five sick days a year, uh, if you get that at all, you know, (laughs) that it's really not enough. And so having some kind of disability status and having that kind of Access to time off or being able to work more flexibly would be really important for us to be able to contribute uh, to society, to the economy, to our own households and livelihoods. Another one would be that we would have better access to benefits. One of the people I spoke to for the book had or has. uh, endometriosis on her diaphragm and lungs. And what that did is it caused something called catamenial pneumothorax, which is basically a fancy way of saying collapsed lungs that are tied to your menstrual cycle. And so she was blacking out regularly because of these lung collapses. Like, how can you go to work in that circumstance, but her doctor was very reluctant and initially refused to fill out any kind of forms with the provincial government classifying her condition as a disability. And so she was still going to work and still struggling and still, you know, kind of using her vacation days and paid time off to kind of compensate where, you know, the government and her employer would not accommodate.
1: Yeah. Uh, As as the writer of the book, and and this is a very book reporting question, I'm about to sort of betray myself in a way, but you know, what was your biggest surprise as you as you reported out the book?
2: I think the biggest surprise was how common these stories are. As someone with endometriosis, who started developing symptoms very early on in my life you feel really alienated you feel really isolated in your suffering because because you have these people all around you saying that there's nothing weird or unusual and so you go well it must be something wrong with me right it's my fault that i'm like this and it's really hard to get out of that mindset as you get older But, you know, what I learned from interviewing all these different types of people is that actually, like, we all felt alienated and isolated in very similar ways. And we've all kind of had to grow up in this medical system that does not really care about us or want to treat us, I think. And. You know, I intentionally worked really hard to make bleed as intersectional as possible. Uh, I am like a cis white lady. So (laughs) I was very cognizant of that. Although like the discrimination that I faced in the medical system has to do with my body size and also like my socioeconomic status, because when I was younger, I was very much a welfare kid and I looked like it. (laughs) And that really influenced, I think, how a lot of doctors saw me. But you know, I spoke to indigenous people, I spoke to black people, I spoke to trans and non-binary people, I spoke to people who were bigger than me, smaller than me, people who had different life circumstances than me, just to kind of get a bigger lay of the land and understand like where we differ and where we overlap in our experiences. And although we come from all these different backgrounds. You know, a lot of us were gaslit by doctors. A lot of us faced different intersections of discrimination in the doctor's office. And so we actually have, despite our differences, a lot in common. And I think that 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 kind of understanding would be really helpful in moving the dial on endometriosis in Canada and abroad.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I'm curious. You spoke about, obviously, just now, but intersectionality. Of all of this, how how do you think that plays into I mean, you read it in the book, but just for the listeners, can you tell me a little bit about how you think that plays into um, uh, you know, this the systems that patients are bumping into and ways that uh, that people are disrupting that system?
2: I think we can't forget that uh, medicine writ large, but gynecology specifically was created. Uh, They were created by white men in a paternalistic and patriarchal society that uh, didn't care about women, didn't care about black people, didn't care about indigenous people, didn't care about pretty much anybody. (laughs) Like, you know, if you look at the early days of gynecology, for example, like you see how it was very much motivated by like scientific discovery and not to help people, not to curb their suffering and their pain. And so that's been handed down a lot. And so, you know, it's not unusual today going to a doctor's office and they still look at you in this like very like, you know, clinical, like yes or no type way, like, you know, the pain scale, like mark an X on the line where you feel the pain, you know, uh, but they really fail to take into account personal circumstances, um, the degree of suffering, how it disrupts your life in all these different ways. And they, because we live in a society that is still very much, you know, racist, sexist, fatphobic, transphobic, you know, discriminate discriminatory against people with disabilities. Um, like when you go to the doc, like the doctors are not immune from these societal forces that are outside of medicine, but they're also not immune from this, forces that are inside medicine that have shaped how medicine behaves and how it acts and how doctors are trained to behave. And so we bump up against it constantly all the time. It's, you know, as someone in in bleed said, you know, often we think of discrimination as these really overt acts, but often it's coded language. It's little slips of, you know, your people don't do X, Y, Z, um, you know, like, so sometimes you don't even catch it. Sorry, my cat is here. You don't even catch it because you're so used to hearing it, you know? And, and at the same time, like, you kind of feel like you're in this position where you have to make a sacrifice to get care. So you kind of shrug it off being like, oh, well, you know, I'll just deal with the, like, you know, you try not to let it bother you, right? Like you try not to let it get to you, but, it accumulates over time.
1: Um, <laughs> it's all good. Oftentimes my, my wife's still home. She hasn't gone to work yet, but oftentimes my, my dog is in here being my office manager. So no, no worries at all. You know, I think it's fair to say in in reading this book that you made some some very specific choices in its, its framing from the name to the chapter titles and things like that. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So in terms of the chapter titles, they're all song references. <laughs> so I guess maybe a little Easter eggs for people who know anything about punk rock or, or anything like that, but yeah, they're all references to songs basically, except the motorhead song, but you know, motorhead had a, had a crossover with the punk movement. Uh, so that was just kind of my like way of having fun with it. Um, But in terms of which songs I chose and also the title of the book and the way that the book looks is I needed it. I wanted it to be confrontational. I wanted to look at this. Like you can't avoid it. You know, the cover for people who haven't seen it is like these big red letters that are more than half the the height of the cover and says bleed. So it's kind of like this off-white background and then these big red letters. And I did it because I just needed people to be confronted by just how much uh, gaslighting, how much discrimination, how much suffering, how much we feel ignored and alienated. And, And so, yeah, like those were all very intentional choices. And hopefully that's the message that comes across.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I think often when we when we talk about books, particularly books that touch on disability or, or disability adjacent topics, we far as reaching for like other books that are in it that it's in conversation with. So. I'm curious if there are other books that you see this book as, you know, as you said, it's confrontational. So maybe the conversation it's had is a, a loud yelling one. But um, can you tell me some of the some of the, geez, the word inspiration, but some of the, the media, or other books that you feel this is in conversation with?
2: Yes, So I can talk about the ones that it's in in conversation with and then the ones that it is in a that it's intentional
1: relationship with.
2: Yeah, exactly. So in terms of in conversation, I think I was influenced by books by Jessica Valenti, also books like Killing the Black Body, you know, Rage Becomes Her, Pain and Prejudice, all these different, Mm. you know, doing harm like these books that are kind of similarly about misogyny and sexism and the way that it affects the way that you know women kind of move through the world in terms of books that it is in a bit of a confrontational relationship with I would say the vast majority of endo literature is very self-help take these supplements do this diet do these exercises just be positive keep a journal uh, and that helps a lot of people. Like, I'm not going to lie. There's a reason these books exist and they keep getting published is because people love self-help books. Um But as anyone with a disability knows, and as everyone with endometriosis is deeply acquainted with, like we hear all kinds of advice from all kinds of people all of the time. And we're not just you know, sitting at home being like, let me receive medical care. Like we're active participants in trying to alleviate our suffering, right? Like we're trying all the different, uh, you know, therapies like osteopathy, physiotherapy, massage therapy, acupuncture, acupressure, all these different machines at the physiotherapist office, Cairo. Like we're trying all these different modalities. We're trying the CBD oil. We're trying the yoga. Uh, So, I mean, we're... Oh, sorry, my cat is distracting me. I'm just it's gonna okay. kick him out. You can take a moment
1: if you want. No worries <laughs> yeah. at all.
2: Just one sec. Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> <Go away. laughs> He's been up since four in the morning. Whoa. <laughs> Harassing me.
1: Kitten energy.
2: Yeah. Orange cat, young orange cat energy. <laughs> so the question I started yeah. talking. What was the question? No worries.
1: So it was you were talking about how the book resists self-help and um, you were just talking about the different modalities therapies and stuff
2: and yeah yeah so we try all of these different things to help ourselves and yet we're treated like we don't know anything and that we've never tried anything right so we go to the doctor's office and they're like have you tried going for walks in the woods have you tried some yoga it's like, listen to me. I've tried literally everything uh, under the sun to help. Like, I just need you to do the medical part. <laughs> so, you know, these self-help books are just kind of more of that noise that we hear all the time. Thank you. And and
1: who is your... I'm always curious about this with authors. Maybe it's me just, you know, being the an annoying journalist. But who is your imagined or ideal reader for this book?
2: I think primarily the main readers will be people with endometriosis, PCOS, adenomyosis, and maybe fibroids. I'm hoping it also gets read by the larger disability community and hopefully also the general public, because it isn't only about the experience of having endometriosis. It's also the history of gynecology. It is how discrimination manifests itself in all these different scenarios, including in the doctor's office and how doctors are also part of society. And so therefore are not immune from these beliefs. Uh, So, I mean, I think that there may be something for everyone, but definitely I wrote it for people who are like me, like people who just feel totally dismissed, have never been heard, have never been helped and who are looking for answers, not just in terms of how to solve their own pain, but also just how to like, what to do with all this anger, I think. I think we're told not to be angry, especially women are told that you're not supposed to be angry in this world. Like you should just, this is just the way things are for you. And Just embrace it, you know, and it's very unbecoming, unladylike to get angry. But we have a lot of reasons to be mad. And I think that validating that that feeling and encouraging people to kind of use their experiences as catalysts to demand better is my main mission with the book.
1: Thank you. I'm going to take a disabled brain fog moment and look at my notes. So for sure.
2: (laughs) Can you hear him like doing all sorts of crazy stuff in the background? And I'm not
1: worried either. (laughs) That's that's my my co-host edits. That's his problem. Okay,
2: like he's just like in the tub playing with the drain. It's like shut up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So good. It's so good. My uh, my dog. Well, she's she's pretty quiet. She's pretty used to it. But occasionally, I have to. I have to. She. I mean, she has separation anxiety like no dog I've ever met. But okay. so if my wife leaves and I'm interviewing somebody, she'll oh, she like, be yeah. annoying. But I have to take the, she's far enough away, but I have to take her collar off because you can hear jingle, 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 jingle. And the person I'm interviewing often can't hear it. But my goodness, does it, it's distracting. Grind on my neurodivergence. <laughs> Um, you, you mentioned earlier, and if you don't want to go here, we absolutely don't have to go here. But, but you mentioned if I label it as back stuff, um, and I'm curious how your understandings of disability are shaped by both endo and and the stuff that I'm I'm guessing is more commonly understood as disabling.
2: So I am 38. When I was 14, I was in gym class practicing, serving the volleyball against the wall. Uh, And I bent down to pick up the ball because I dropped it and my back did something. And I stood back up and I was like, I cannot walk. It took me more than an hour to go back to the locker room. I needed a classmate to help me put my clothes back on. And then I ended up going to the ER where I waited for seven hours to see a doctor. They didn't even do an x ray or any kind of scan. They just gave me some painkillers and that was it. And ever since then, my back has hurt regularly and I had no idea why. I would complain about it a lot to different doctors and they would just say, just lose weight. Just lose weight. Losing weight will help with the pain. And I mean, at some point I was going to the gym a lot. I did lose a lot of weight. My back was still killing me. And I was at gym doing like back squats with a barbell and it was too heavy. This was when I was like 26 or something like that. It was too heavy. And I ended up dropping the barbell on my lower back and... It just kind of was like I don't know if I messed it up further or what happened then. I didn't even go to the doctor because,
1: right? Uh, because you were just like, they're not going to listen. So exactly. why why take time out of my schedule to, to, to face? Be yeah, yeah.
2: To like waste my time in a waiting room to talk to somebody who doesn't believe me, <laughs> and who will just be like, oh, well, just keep going back to the gym. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I was like, whatever, I'll just deal with it. So I just kept taking, like I had a prescription for like really high dosage of Aleve for my cramps. So I was just taking that because that was also indicated for back pain. And that's pretty much all I did is I just took this 500 milligram naproxen, which you can only take twice a day because of the high dosage and because overuse creates ulcers in your stomach. Um, And then when I moved from Montreal to Ottawa, I got a family doctor and I was like, my back is messed up. Like it's been messed up for a long time. Like, can we like something about this? Because what what had happened actually is that I started feeling like really intense pain in my knee. And I thought that that was from a time when I almost broke my kneecap. But as I went to the physiotherapist, they were like, I think it's coming from your back because it was like. The back pain radiating down my legs. Right. Uh, and so finally I got x-rays and they were like, Oh yeah, your back is real messed up. <laughs> and they were like, <laughs> they were like, Oh, it's like spondylolisthesis and some other stuff. And I was like, Okay, well, at least now I understand like what this is. Uh, and then I just was like going to the osteo and the physio and kind of just doing the same thing. Right. And then finally I, I got at some point when I was. It was like 2018, I guess I went to an orthopedic surgeon, a consultation, and they made me do all these like balance tests and walking tests and stuff like that. And then I sat down in the office and he's like, have you considered losing weight? Like, I'm going to, I straight up disassociated. I was just like, I can't process this conversation. I stopped talking to him. I just stared off into the distance and he was like, hello, is there something wrong with you? And I was like, I can't talk to you. I just got up and left. Um, and I wrote him an email the next day explaining why. And his answer was, I'm sorry, I couldn't help you. <laughs>
0: um, helpful.
2: Yeah. And I was like, well, I mean, you could have helped me if you would listen to me. But I mean, <laughs> he's keeping score here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean, that kind of put me off of seeking help. But meanwhile, my back has been getting more and more sore. And I actually had a CAT scan for an unrelated reason to my back, but it was in that region. And the CAT scan report is like, like digestion system looks normal, but her back is really messed up. And so I was able to bring that to another doctor who I was seeing for a different reason. And, um, you know, he was like, well, what do you want to do about your back? And I was like, no one's ever asked me if I wanted to do anything about it. But yeah, like, am I going to be able to walk when I'm 60? Because like, I feel like the visual that I have in my mind of what my back looks like is basically that it's like detaching from my legs. So I mean, like, it's a serious question. Um, And so he sent me for an MRI and I got the requisition in August of 2022. And when I saw him in January of 2023, I still hadn't had it because the waits in Quebec are so long. He sent me to the Ontario side. I got it in a week. (laughs) And the results of the MRI were really terrible and so much worse than I knew and that I you know, I'm still trying to understand what a lot of it says. I showed the report to my osteopath and she kind of decoded a bit of it. So I know maybe what some of the line by line, I might understand a bit more, but I don't really understand how it all works together.
1: Understand it as an ecosystem. Yeah. yeah I remember once and I promised this, day, you know, we don't have to, I don't have to drag us to where it's, you know, medical trauma sharing podcast, but I, I had, um, I ended up, I had a, wow. Okay. So I was born with, You know, I jokingly call it a main disability. And then I had a back injury that was unrelated. Well, it was kind of related. It was overuse. I tried to train full time as an athlete and do five classes at university because I was told that's what you do. And yeah, that's not what white disabled CPS do, apparently. (laughs) Uh, But uh, during that process, I went to a physiatrist. Um, Bless him. Uh, As people in the southern US might say, bless his heart. Because it was uh, it was sort of like I walked in there thinking I was going to get some kind of care, and I got. So we have two options: medical marijuana. This was like 2011, so like not not a common topic of conversation. Medical marijuana, or we can cut the nerves in your back. Those are your two options. And I was like, <laughs> "Wow, those okay. are real extremes." <laughs> I was like, "So I'm going to take neither, and I'm going to go back to the you know the anti-spasmatic medication and and." Hope and right, basically, despite not being religious, um yeah, and from what you said, like I think myself and and certainly listeners can uh, you know feel some some kinship with that like how do I put it grieving process of lack of function that I think comes through in our our conversation of like like you said earlier with with the folks that you spoke to for the book with endo like the uh you know, when work is harder <laughs> when Doing anything is harder and you've got to take unpaid time off to be able to take care of yourself. There really is that depressing aspect, isn't there? Of like, oh, I'm, I'm missing out on what what I imagined life to be.
2: It's a bit of FOMO, but it's also like resentment. Just like, I can't believe I have to do this like because no one else will care about me and care for me.
1: Yeah, um, and the medical system's. Typical mode of like, well, well, it's your problem. Yeah, Uh, if
2: only you just did things a little bit better, differently, like maybe you could fix yourself. And it's like, sir, my bones are not in the right place. (laughs) Like, (laughs) what do you want me to do about that?
1: Yeah, I was speaking about movement in a different way. I always find it funny when Paralympians come back or para athletes that are elite, maybe they're not at the Paralympic level, but you know, and they go in for something and they're told, well, you you should be in the gym more. And it's like, No, no, their full-time job is being in the gym. That is not the problem. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah,
2: like Uh. about this back step, because it's still very like much in process. um, And like, I don't have answers. Like the doctor who referred me for the MRI said he would refer me to a neurosurgeon. But I mean, in the Quebec system, I know the Canadian systems in general are like not great, but the Quebec system is like a special awful that special
1: brand of hell
2: yeah like when i was living in on on the ontario side it was totally so much better than the quebec side the quebec side especially near ottawa is so terrible it's insane but anyway like and i was like great so maybe i'll get to see somebody in like four years so i actually went back to that doctor who i disassociated from and i was like i don't know if you remember me but i got an mri here are the results and i thought you should see them fully thinking that he, like, that was basically me telling him to F off, right? Like, to be like, it was legitimate. And, uh, you know, he was like, well, I mean, you can come back and see me if you want. And I really, like, I had this moment of, like, do I go back to this doctor who I had this, like, terrible experience with? uh, Or do I just wait in the Quebec system for years? Uh, And so I was like, um, you know, I I can maybe eat eat it a little bit. Like if it means being like the front of the line somewhere instead of the back of the line somewhere else. But I was able to say like, if you can like control yourself and not tell me to lose weight in our appointment, (laughs) like then I will come and see. So I was able to like kind of turn it back around on him and set the terms. So I feel much more empowered going into this appointment where I can just tell him to, to screw himself if I don't like what he's saying to me.
1: And and speaking of that, do you bring it back to the book for a second? Do you view the book as a as a tool for self advocacy?
2: I am shaking all these things to make him. He's just at my door, like trying to get in. Um, Yeah, I do. I mean, I don't give people like tips necessarily on how to advocate for themselves, but it's more like a show and tell thing. And like, this is how I did it. This is how other people did it. Maybe this might work for you, but. I mean I'm very much a proponent of telling doctors to suck it. <laughs> like they they need to know that what they're doing isn't right just because they're doctors. They think that whatever they do is altruistic and correct and kind and it's not. It's not helpful to a lot of people. And so I think I think doctors need to understand and to realize and to embrace that they're there because of their patients, their doctors, because of their patients, and they have to start listening to them to be able to deliver the kind of care that they imagine themselves giving when they, you know, were first trying to get into medical school and go into medical school. I think the medical school machine really pumps out like these jaded people that are just like, I know everything because I did seven years of med school and, you know, the the medical system, medical training system is very punishing. There have been a lot of reports about how discriminatory it is and how awful it is to the trainees. Uh, and I'm like, it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to buy into this view of medicine. You can do things better and differently. Yeah. And so I'm and hoping- I, I wonder,
1: I wonder how, because I forget the data came out recently, uh, Of how few first year med school seats there actually are in Canada compared to other countries. Like it's comparatively tiny,
2: which is crazy when every province and territory is begging to have more doctors.
1: Well, and when the rules for um, the rules for even there was an article recently, I'll find it and put it in the show notes because I can't remember who wrote it. I'll blame the Toronto Star, although I'm not quite sure if it was in the Toronto Star. And it's, the blame isn't even the right word. But it was talking about this college in Ireland that actually takes mostly Canadian students. But they're, when they come back to Canada, their accreditation isn't recognized.
2: Of course. <laughs> they have
1: to go, but you, but they're, they're recognized everywhere else.
2: Of course. Yeah. Like, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, Canadian bodies are the same as Irish bodies are the same as Indian bodies are the same as South African bodies. I mean, there are different standards of care. Sure. But the barriers to entering the healthcare field as a, as a person with training outside of Canada, when you're trying to get into the Canadian system is outrageous. It doesn't make any sense. And I think every province and the federal government knows this and yet they are not doing all that they can to make this better for Canadians. And I think that like, this is a tangent, but like, I think that they're allowing universal healthcare to collapse. They're, it's not an accident. Like I think that they are doing a lot of different things that are making it harder and harder to get, you know, universal free healthcare that we pay for through our taxes. And we pay a lot through our taxes for access to a service that is not helping us because they're just not investing the right way into the healthcare system. It's very frustrating as someone who I mean I make this point in in bleed is that, you know, the real drain on the healthcare system are often um, GPs in the sense that, you know, we as someone with endometriosis, like I went to that I went to doctors dozens dozens of times before someone would take me seriously. And so all of those appointments cost the government money. All of those appointments took time away from other patients with other problems. It took away maybe the doctor being able to roster other patients because they were so busy with the ones that they had. And so like the system is broken from both sides, right? Like it's broken from like the government side, but it's also broken from the practitioner side. And there's lots of people offering great ideas on how to fix things. And then they're just like, Let's just put more money into it. But without direction of how to spend that money.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I find like, um, like I give the example of I live in Saskatchewan. I give the example of epilepsy. The average wait time for formal epilepsy diagnosis. This doesn't mean you don't get treatment beforehand, but because it's uh, because you technically need a sleep study to be confirmed. The average wait time is like 13 years or something. Mm -hmm. And I find I came from a, like, my uncle's a doctor, my grandparents were doctors in Britain, not Canada. Uh, My mom was a nurse. And it always strikes me how much of it is I did three years of an education degree, so I'm stealing a pedagogical term, but the hidden curriculum, like, how much of my survival in the medical system was my mom understanding what was going on, was my ability to. I mean, disabled people who can't, who are viewed as articulate are always have the up and up as opposed to others. Thanks, ableism. Uh, Saying that sarcastically, just in case it wasn't clear, like the hidden curriculum of the language that you need to use to get care and knowing, like you said, knowing when you feel safe enough to say, no, F you, doctor. This is what's going to happen versus what we're trained to do, which is be submissive and sit in the corner and not
2: not advocate for no doctor.
1: And then there's always this balance, I think, of and I'd be curious your thoughts on this, but like this balance between this internal frustration of, like, okay, I know I need to self advocate to get this. Do I? This is the four hundredth time I've self-advocated in this space this week, and I have to say all the right things, and I have to not, I have to make the doctor feel like they know most of the time, make them feel like they're the smartest person in the room. When I'm pretty sure that isn't part of the Hippocratic Oath, you know that you you must view yourself as the yeah. smartest person in the room.
2: Like this is. Um like the things that you describe are definitely prevalent in endometriosis care and are further complicated by the fact that almost all the patients are women. Mm -hmm. And so like, we also have to contend with the inherent misogyny and sexism that exists in the medical system and in society in general. And, you know, a lot of historical misogyny believes that women make up their symptoms, that they're exaggerating their symptoms to get attention, that they can't possibly know anything close to what the doctor knows. Uh, And that, uh, you know, like, especially with a condition that affects the reproductive system, like there's, that's a whole other dimension Um, as well. You know, like, for example, for me, like, I knew I never wanted kids. So when I turned, when I was 26, I was like, Hey, how about a hysterectomy? Because I don't want periods and I don't want kids. So like, can we just do that? And they were like, you're going to change your mind. You don't know anything. I never did, by the way, I never changed my mind. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but like, so there's all this like added baggage to that interaction. But I will say to borrow another academic term, which is one that I kind of discovered in the writing of Bleed, epistemic injustice is is a perfect description of the dynamic that endometriosis patients face because I'm not sure what it's like in other disability communities, but people with endometriosis are accustomed to being misunderstood because people don't actually understand endometriosis. GPs don't really understand endometriosis, and even generalist OBJYN and gynecologists do not understand endometriosis. And so you get a lot of bad advice. And so what ends up happening is that people with this condition end up researching the hell out of it, you know, reading academic journals, reading like all kinds of materials, some good, some not so good. They get into these communities where they share this information for good and bad, you know, and so we actually acquire so much knowledge about our condition and our Management of the condition, but then when we go to the doctor's office, it's not considered knowledge because we're not doctors. We didn't go to medical school, and I had a doctor legitimately say that because I was I was not an MD, and because my psychologist was not an MD, that what we knew about me was relevant.
1: Uh, I was I'm like, sure that went over swimmingly.
2: I, well, I fired him in that appointment. It's detailed in bleed, <laughs> but I just it like. I was like, I've been talking to this therapist for 17 years. Like, I think she knows a little bit more about me than you who has known me for 45 minutes. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I, and I find like, I uh, there's this odd balance. Well, first I'll say that, like, what it's like, like, I can only speak my experience. And, and realistically, I can only really speak to like ambulatory wheelchair users, CP, but like CP is one of the most common disabilities from birth or the most, one of the most common brain injury from birth or shortly thereafter. So that's all CP is, It's basically brain damage if we boil it down. But like, the amount of appointments where I've gone in and I don't have anything against Google. This is true of mental health or whatever. But I remember I went to see a therapist and I got uh, uh, well, I Googled your condition and I'm like, you know, that's cool, but that could have stayed like inside of your head, or we could have had like more of a conversation about this, or um uh, like c p is often mm-hmm. viewed as a as a pediatric condition, still doesn't conceive of people turning eighteen and being adults, and you know shock surprise, we live past eighteen, mm-hmm. and so even with these common conditions, uh, I wrote a piece recently, ish what is time about sure this where this comes in conflict with say um People with long COVID who are desperate for this research and often and advocates who I spoke to, you know, cop to this, so to speak, saying like there's sometimes a perception about other disabilities that they are much more researched than they are, that they are much more understood than they are, um, which can really complicate how community gets built because you have some what's well, called them lifelong disabled people who are like, look at all the, and it comes from a place of like, I think often a place of anxiety of like, look at these people coming into our community and getting all of this attention. But then those same people are often presuming what they know about long covid or m e c f s or you know all of these conditions and it that's you know that's what it makes me think of when we're talking about like your book and complicating what the umbrella looks like and complicating what we think we know about conditions versus what we actually know and like centering patient voices while also being able to reel in the the self-help side uh, like you said the the bad self-help advice the like the like you know you, yeah, you'll take like, you'll do one class of yoga and you'll take this herbal pill and you will never have pain ever again
2: <laughs> i wish that was true cuz i would be doing it i'd be first in line i mean yeah like it's such a minefield it's so complicated to have any kind of disability in society in a society that is Extremely ableist. And like, not only because of the medical treatment you receive, but also like attitudes about what you should and shouldn't be able to do on your own. Like, what you, you know, if you are sad, upset about having a disability or multiple disabilities, like, you're having a pity party. Like, you're not allowed to grieve for what you've missed and what you will miss. And it's like, like, it's the rules that have been erected around what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do as a person with any kind of disability or chronic pain are ridiculous. They make no sense. And yet they are so pervasive across medical care and across society in general.
1: And some of our community rules, like disability community, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but... Oftentimes, I see, especially on social media, which I'm trying to reduce my time on for this reason, it's like there are, there are communities for which the cure narrative is really bad and we don't want to erase and, and that can be all true. But then sometimes some people with loud voices will then prescribe that to other areas of the disability community and say, well, how dare you want to be cured? And it's like, well, like... Yeah. If I have a condition that can be, then I don't, you know, like, and it's whatever. Yeah, it's
0: like the life limiting, and Whatever
2: that
1: means. Yeah. Then, then why am I prescribing, you know, why is one person prescribing their politic to another? We can talk about, like, how it's not helpful to say we need to cure all disabilities and that that can be, you know, problematic statement. But I think the, the weapons, if I can call it that, uh... I'm far too leftist to be using a Warren metaphor, but I can't think of anything else. Um,
2: But know what you mean. Like even just like a pop culture reference is like you know Lizzo, the the singer Lizzo is a you know large lady, and she on her Instagram she posted some videos of her working out. I think or like something about there's something some reference to weight loss, and people saw it as a massive betrayal. Like. You're trying to lose weight. You don't care about the fat community. And it was like, whoa, 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 whoa. But like that kind of attitude is everywhere, even outside of disability. Uh, This, like these weird competitions that people create out of for no reason and it serves no purpose other than to make them feel like they're not the sellouts. (laughs) Like it's like, How dare this band, you know, get bigger? Like, I want them to stay small so that I can enjoy them in this, like, shitty bar uh, for $5.
1: It's (laughs) like we prescribe what... I was talking to a friend about this recently, like it's much easier to point at another person and say, ah, it's your fault. I'm feeling shitty about my current life circumstance than to, which is in a lot of ways is fair, but I think sometimes we prescribe like the, as disabled people, sometimes we prescribe the attitude we have towards the medical system, broadly defined, and then we level it at others at the same level of vitriol. (laughs) Gets amplified on on social media, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm currently trying to unpack, Tracy, what <laughs> what that actually means.
2: Um, yeah, it's so it's because- be, like yeah, sorry, like just like I do have a lot of mixed feelings about like disability communities online. As a person with you know these problems, I'm not just an observer. Like I'm I'm a person who's experienced a lot of the things, and it's and it's complicated because, I mean you want community, you want to be able to identify with people who have been through the same things as you. But there are all these different levels of competition. And, you know, a community brings all comers, right? And so like, some people are a lot more open minded, a lot more people, there are a lot of people who are super close minded, for example, there's a lot of TERFs and endometriosis. Um, And so like, it's just so complicated. And kind of stressful sometimes to be in these spaces because there's drama that, you know, like, and I'm very much like, (laughs) I'm the kind of person that leaves, like backs out the door when there's drama, you know, I'm like, okay, bye. And so when I see this, like, I feel really unwelcome. Um, But like, I also should mention that, you know, I think all uh, women are trained from a young age to believe that there's like a scarcity of women facing resources. And so you must compete with the other women to get them, whether it's access to mates, access to resources, access to jobs, to income. And so like women hating women is a really common thing. And once I understood that and realized how that operated, it was a lot easier to unsubscribe from it and to be so, like to be in a position where I celebrated other people instead of, you know, kind of trying to take them down. And I think not everyone has come to that realization. Maybe they never will. I do think probably more people should be in therapy than currently <laughs> are in therapy. And, but yeah, like all of these dynamics exist in the endometriosis community and probably all sorts of other disability communities. And it's hard. It's complicated. It's stressful. We go back because it feels like maybe they're the only people who actually understand us. Um, but for our own self-preservation, I think we kind of need to temper how much we engage.
1: <laughs> Thank you. So as we close, where can people find your find your work? Where would you like them to follow you? Where Where would you like them to order your book from? All of those wonderful questions.
2: Yeah, so Bleed is coming out March 21st, but it seems as though some books are already shipping because my friend just received her copy. So, I mean, that's great. So, people can order from all the usual places that you would order books. You can also ask your independent booksellers to carry the book if you want to support stores in your community. And in terms of following me on Twitter, I'm at Tracy Lindemann. On Instagram, it's at Bleed underscore the book and i also have a website bleed the if you want to learn more about the book and there's also a link in the top corner to all the different pre-order sites as well
1: thank you so much
2: thank you
0: all right john so Let's wrap up for the week. Who are you putting in your Crip of the Week? I am putting
1: the recently uh, departed uh, Judy Heumann, uh, who has been labeled in a lot of circles as the mother of the modern disability rights movement, featured heavily in in Crip Camp. Really uh, foundational to our understanding of activism. And um, I put it here as the Crip of the Week as we were saying beforehand could have been put in as a crip of all time uh, yeah we talk often on yeah. this podcast about a lack of elders and and certainly judy was was one of ours as a as a community and as i'm watching what happens here uh, i just want to take the time to you know thank her for her contributions but also to remind community that in a lot of ways what's important to me at least a little old me is that we're really mindful of what Judy's legacy is, how we portray the work that her and her contemporaries did, and also how we move that forward. I think the only comparison that I can draw and is that I think a lot of beautiful things have happened as we've commemorated Stella Young came up with the term inspo porn or popularized it. There's a arts award in australia named after her for example i'm really interested in how we as a community can carry on her work and um and how we can be curious about where we slot into that and and maybe even where we where we might not disagree but where the next evolution might be um we talk sometimes on this podcast about you know generational disability activism and so i thought it'd be important to and we did not just me we thought it would be important to, to name that on today's podcast how about for you andy who's your crip of the week
0: yeah before i before i give my crip of the week i just want to add a little bit to what you said john because i think there's i'm not gonna eulogize judy human i didn't know her personally i I certainly came to know her because of the stuff that I do and the fact that my work is impacted by her because she was one of the leading voices for the 504 Rehabilitation Act. She was one of the leading voices that helped get the ADA through and passed. And the things that stood out for me was just how relentless Judy Human was in her pursuit of just basic equality and just basic. I want to be treated the same as everybody else. And at this point, by the time you listen to this, there are are certainly plenty of articles uh, by all different types of persons and organizations. I suggest you find ones that are written by disabled people. Rebecca Coakley she wrote a wonderful piece about judy human recently for cnn Um, i believe yes i think you're right and there was also uh rachel maddow did a a seven minute little clip that i think does a very nice job of summarizing some of the things that that judy did over her life one of the things i never realized was that she she originally was wanted to be a teacher and kind of what started her into this world was the fact that the New York State Board denied her a teaching license and that 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 one act spurred probably some of could be argued as some of the biggest civil rights changes for disabled people simply because they denied a teaching certificate to one person. And John mentioned, you know, we don't have a ton of disabled elders to look to. And I think it can be really easy To look at a legacy like Judy Leaves and see how much somebody does, but also go, I could never have that much impact. And I think it's a real reality check that any of us can have that impact, right? I mean, it takes literally one person to be like, I don't think that's fair. (laughs) And then talking to folks and building community and building a momentum. And you can't look where you're at right now. Now and say, I haven't done all this change. You have to, I think, I think we have to be a little kinder to ourselves uh, and, you know, allow ourselves a little space and, and know it takes time. I mean, these, these structures don't change overnight and it one fight isn't going to change everything for everybody. So I'll just add to what John said. And yeah, I think Judy Human will go down in our Crip Hall of Fame whenever we get that started. But, for for my Crip of the Week, I'll keep it a little consistent. Somebody who, who's in this idea of legislation um, and in the law and my Crip of the Week, and maybe they listen, they probably don't. Maybe someday we'll get to them. But my Crip of the Week is Jamal Whitehead, who is a former Seattle trial lawyer who was recently uh, nominated by the Biden administration to be on a federal court and he was confirmed, which makes him the first judicial nomination to a federal court with a disclosed disability. He's, he's open about his disability. He's a, uh, he uses a prosthetic leg, um, which obviously has its own connotations in terms of how well he could hide that. And I'm sure there are other judges who have been confirmed at some point that may or may not be disabled, but he is one of Only a handful of judges, at least by the article that I read about him, he's only a handful of over 800 judges that living openly about their disability. And so, you know, that that tells you a lot about the judicial system in the United States, that that there are a lot of things that are being um, that decisions are being made judicially about disability that are not made by disabled people very often. And so hopefully um Judge Whitehead should keep Judy's legislative accomplishments continuing, hopefully. But who knows what happens with our Supreme Court and all that kind of bullshit. So
2: without you, ending Andy.
0: this on. Yeah, without ending this on too <laughs> sour of a note, you know, I think uh, What has really been something I think that's been pretty powerful over the last couple of weeks for me in the wake of of Judy's passing and some of these other elements that are coming out is really how connected the disabled community can be. Even if we are pretty spread out, we I think we're all generally fighting the same fight. We just got to find ways to communicate better to each other. So with that, John, that's all I got. There you go. That, you?
1: We're we're uh, we're both out of spoons, I think, which is a good way to end uh, <laughs> the podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening, Absolutely. and we'll
0: see you in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, whenever we get around to releasing it, it'll be out in your ears. We'll see you, John. See you. Disability, movement, etc., is a blank owl production. You can find out more about what we're doing, including past episodes, show notes, and transcripts at blankowl.com. This show was produced by John and I. Audio recording, editing, and mixing was done by me. The music for this episode was composed by Adrian Doc If you'd like to support our efforts,